At last, the long war is over. Can we finally give peace a chance? Hmm, we've been down this road before. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When one powerful moneyed interest dictates policy and how public money is spent, that is not democracy. Yet because virtually all Americans see the military as some kind of unknowable, huge, incredibly complex system of systems, when our national budget, spending and taxing, comes up, since we, the common people, really have no idea, Eisenhower's famous military-industrial complex gets their booty. The brilliant, unseen thief gets away with it. Despite the fact that the military, with all its overwhelming weapons and delivery systems, so blatantly was defeated by a ragtag but committed group in Afghanistan, and some 45 years earlier by the people of Little Vietnam, as Tom Engelhart notes, you just can't lose when you're part of the military-industrial complex because they make a lot of money. Though we're not at war anymore, it once again does not indicate any peace dividend. There instead is yet another bright future for weapons and war. But we're not at war. Since once again we find ourselves in that situation and no war, how is it that the intent of our founders, that the military must serve at the will of the people, how can that essential aspect of democracy be restored? Can it be restored? Can our national treasury ever be made to serve the actual common good? I'm very pleased to say back with us in Keeping Democracy Alive is returning guest William Astori, whose article on Tom Dispatch asks about the U.S. military post-Afghanistan. Can we finally give peace a chance? William S. Story is a retired lieutenant colonel, United States Air Force, and professor of history and a senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network, an organization of critical veteran and military and national security professionals. And his personal blog is Bracing Views. Bill, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Yeah, thanks, Bert. Thanks for having me. Your article begins by citing that all wise, never wrong, cosmic philosopher Yoda. <laughs> to suggest he was wrong may seem unthinkable, when it, but when it comes to his certainty about the unknowingness of the future, you say he was wrong. How so? Yeah, I, I, I hate to go against the great Jedi master, really? Yoda. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a classic scene in The uh, Empire Strikes Back uh, where uh, Luke Skywalker is talking to Yoda and he's asking Yoda, you know, will Han Solo and Princess Leia die? And, and Yoda says, difficult to see, always in motion, the future. Uh, but yet when we, when we look at the future of the Pentagon, uh, it doesn't seem that difficult to see at all. Uh, as you pointed out in your intro, uh, the Pentagon just uh, evacuated 
with its tail between its legs from Afghanistan. Uh, and yet the reward for that disaster was another $24 billion voted by the Congress uh, to fill uh, the Pentagon's coffers. So it does seem even when the Pentagon loses, as it did in Afghanistan, it still wins, as in you know more funding uh, for, for more weaponry. Oh my goodness, it does still win for sure. Uh, the idea of a peace dividend, you know, it's not a new idea. It reminds me kind of of the brass ring on the carousel. We know it's there. We keep seeing it. We keep reaching out for it, but it remains always out of reach. Your essay gets to the root of why it didn't happen, as many of us thought it would after Vietnam, and why it's not about to happen now. You say it's easy to see that peace will be given no chance at all now. What disproportionately powerful interests stand committed to preventing that? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is incredibly disappointing. You know, after after the Vietnam War, of course, we 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 had the Cold War. You know, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Uh, that rivalry, if you will, uh, kept the military-industrial complex going. Uh, which is what Eisenhower warned us about in 1961, right. uh, 60 years ago, um, and so you know that uh, you know that that kept weapons still being funded. You know more nuclear weapons, more conventional weaponry, supposedly because we we had to we had to prevent the you know the Soviet Union from attacking and taking over uh, Europe. Uh, then. Uh, when uh, when I was on active duty in, in the Air Force in, in 1991, the Soviet Union totally collapsed. Right. Uh, and we talked about, hey, now now we can really have a peace dividend. Uh, but it didn't happen there either because, you know, people started arguing that, that now that we're coming out of a bipolar world uh, and the Soviet Union is no longer the enemy, oh, my God, uh, the world has become more unstable. So we need to spend even more money uh, oh. because we're because we're now in a multilateral world and after all it's the u.s military that provides stability at least in the way you know that they, they frame it that way uh now now we see with the end of end of the war in afghanistan another chance for a peace dividend now about 30 years later uh and we're already hearing that uh-oh there's a new cold war now we have to worry about China. So there's always a new threat to justify why we can never cash in our peace dividend. But of course, Vietnam wasn't, the reality on the ground really had nothing to do with the Cold War. It was the people of Vietnam uh, they beat the French in 1954, and really that should have been the end of the war, but it got cast, framed into that Cold War definition, which which wasn't real, really. And now that, uh, that you know, it's not a bipolar world, as it never really was, in my opinion. It was, right. it's just, uh, we, we have to invent something like that to, to keep the military alive. And it's just, it's it's surprising how much power that narrative still has that, that the military provides stability. My goodness, it does the opposite. I think. I mean, how many times do we have to see how much disorder 
the military causes. And in terms of the, the, the budget for the Pentagon, as you say, it went up $24 billion this year. That's an increase of $24 billion. Many years ago, it was revealed that, I don't remember the exact number, but over $60 billion per year was spent on obsolete nuclear weapon systems. Uh, things that are just gathering dust. Strictly in terms of military planning and strategy, it certainly appears that spending on our already vast nuclear arsenal is an unwise divergence of, of defense dollars from building our actual military strength. As a retired lieutenant colonel with the Air Force, tell us please about the so-called modernization of the American nuclear arsenal and why that figure blows you away. Oh right, yeah. It's it's not just it's not just unwise the the money being spent. It, it's really unconscionable, because if any if any of these weapons are, are ever used, you know we're we're looking we're looking at uh, at possibly the the end of human life and most other life on on planet Earth, as you know, due to the phenomenon of of nuclear winter. Uh, yes, it, it's 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 really again it's 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 staggering to me uh, that. We're we're not only talking about maintaining the the nuclear triad that we have, uh, but we're not now we're talking about modernizing that triad uh, at at the cost of um, as much as 1.7 trillion. That's trillion dollars uh, over the next 30 years or so. And, you know, the, the nuclear triad is is something that I've I've studied for oh the last 50 years or so. Uh, and I know not everyone's familiar with it. It, it basically consists of the land, you know, land-based ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles in silos. Right. Uh, there's a there's a Navy component with nuclear submarines like our Ohio-class Trident uh, submarines, and then there's Air Force bombers uh, such as the B1 and, and B2 and the and the old B52 from the Doctor Strangelove movie. <laughs> you know, we we still have those. Uh, even though those uh, are, you know, flew first in the 1950s. So, you know, we, we created this triad again, you know, uh, uh, allegedly to deter uh, the Soviet Union uh, when, when actually, you know, we were, we were building this huge uh, nuclear arsenal, uh, you know, much more as a way to intimidate uh, rather than as a way simply to deter. Uh, so, Right now, right now, the military plans on on spending uh, an enormous sum of money to build uh, a new generation of land-based ICBM to replace the older Minuteman missiles, which is completely unnecessary. Uh, the Air Force is talking about building a new B-21 bomber to eventually to replace the B-1 and the B-2. Uh, and the Navy, of course, is not going to miss out they're talking about building a new Columbia class submarine to replace the Ohio class uh, submarine. Uh, all of this, all of these weapons are unnecessary. Uh, again, I would say they're unconscionable because what they're designed to do uh, is, is to kill millions and, and millions of people. They're, they're genocidal weapons. And, you know, think back, Bert, to uh, when, you know, President Obama was elected. Uh, he was elected uh, in 2008 with the campaign promise of working toward the elimination of nuclear weapons. This mm. is 13 years ago. 
And, and people like, you know, Henry Kissinger, George F. Will, a conservative commentator, you know, they were they were in favor. I think George Schultz as well, uh, former secretary of state, uh, they were in favor of of downsizing and working toward the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons. All that has gone away. Uh, we're, we're now, uh, you know, now the Pentagon is saying that we need more and more of them, uh, allegedly, again, to deter uh, China, which, uh-huh. you know, supposedly, you know, China is supposedly uh, possibly building uh, some missile silos of their own. And yet it, it, it's left unsaid the fact that that we have more than enough deterrence right now uh, uh, with just the Navy component of, of the so-called triad. Uh, and, and so this is, this is yet another, in, in, uh, uh, it's yet another example of the power of the military industrial complex. You know, the fact that there's so much money to be made uh, in building all of these new bombers, new submarines, even, even new missile silos. Absolutely amazing. It doesn't, I just wonder how they could sell it to Congress. Are they so, uh, you know, uh, without a backbone that they don't ask questions like, hey, guys, what's the logic in this? I mean, if if these ICBMs, sort of ancient ICBMs, it it should be decommissioned uh, and they're not adding to our actual protection why is nobody talking about decommissioning these things? And, you know, if we're going to have a strong military, then I would think you want to have uh, realistic uh, uh, weapon systems. Oh, I know. I, I completely agree. Um, I, I think, I, I think the problem is, is that sadly, uh, you know, these weapon systems are job creators, uh, at least in some congressional districts. And, as you know from studying, you know, military contractors, what what they do very cleverly, uh, whether it be the B twenty one bomber or the F thirty five fighter, or even submarines, uh, is is they spread the manufacturing to as many congressional districts as as possible. So uh, this was this was really first done, uh, to my knowledge, with with the B one bomber Rockwell International. Uh, they really try to spread the the manufacturing to to yes. every state in the United States, just about. So you look at the F thirty five jet fighter. I, I may have the exact stat wrong, but more than forty states contribute to building the F thirty five jet fighter. And so there's as many as many congressional districts as possible get get involved. Uh, so, you know, you go to congressman or congresswoman so-and-so and you're like, okay, you want to, you want to cancel the B-21 bomber because we don't need another, you know, nuclear bomb dropping plane. Well, that's going to cost you, you know, 1500 jobs in your district if right. you decide to do this. Right. And that's how they get them to go along. Boy, it seems, it seems so, so obvious. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about frankly, a real threat to our, our democracy. Uh, the U.S. military post-Afghanistan. Can we finally give peace a chance? Our guest is William Astori, who's a retired lieutenant colonel 
of the Air Force, and we're talking about uh, the military budget and, and what it does to our democracy and our safety, for that matter. And vast military expenditures, as we know, are what finally ended the Great Depression. You know, a lot of steps were taken by Roosevelt before that, but it was the huge military expenditures that ended that finally put the nail in the coffin of uh, of the uh, Great Depression. As you say, members of Congress really like military contracts in their districts to provide jobs. And I see that there's possibility for other uses of uh, other uh, ways to create jobs that actually increase national security. Like, for example, I just read that some of the tools we buy, including spy satellites, and they actually could be made useful to spot wildfires at home. And it seems to me wildfires are kind of a threat to our security. We need high-speed rail service. Why not... Why isn't there talk, you know, since members of Congress are about jobs in their districts, why not talk about full-use strategic planning as part of our defense strategy? Uh, conversion scares people away, but just full-use planning uh, for other things other than just weapon systems that just make a lot of money for the contractors but sit there on the shelves and gather dust. Why is nobody talking about switching around? Oh yeah, it, no. Uh, we have, I guess, I guess it's been called military Keynesian, Keynesianism, right? The idea you stimulate the economy by building lots of uh, weapons, wow. uh, and, and it's, and it's. I mean, it, it works in a sense, mm -hmm. but 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 all all of the all, economic studies have proven that for you know for 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 every job created by you know a military project, typically two or three jobs are created. Uh, if you spend the same amount of money on something like, say, for example, infrastructure, right. you know, repairing our repairing our roads and bridges, or or building high speed rail, um, and uh, I mean, obviously, you know, our our country faces enormous challenges. Uh, we have a healthcare system that's that's under tremendous pressure yes. because of because of COVID. Right. Uh, we we have um, you know, we we have uh. uh you know, we face the threat of uh, climate change, right. and we need to, and we need to move much more rapidly to to an to an economy that 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 uses renewable energy sources. You know, we could be investing much more in solar and wind, and and, and other you know greener uh, varieties of of uh, power generation, uh, and yet and yet we're not, and yet we're not. We're we're spending more than half of the federal discretionary budget on on military matters and as you say Bert, you know so much of it is is wasteful and and unnecessary i wonder if you were to to do a poll of people which is more of a threat to our national security china or climate change i wonder what people would say i mean i know what my answer would be and i think you know china is an economic competitor no question about that and, and we need to, I would think it would make more sense to look at it from that point of view. But uh, I, I wonder how much it's getting through that uh, climate change, I mean, it's a serious, eh, these fires, these floods, these hurricanes. I don't know. Maybe people are the, that cowed into thinking, oh, yeah, China is the biggest threat to here. And 
I, I got to tell you, this podcast is produced in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where a few weeks ago, there was a lot of hoopla about an air show by the Thunderbirds, otherwise known as the U.S. Air Force Air Demonstration Squadron. They were, there were six F-16C Fighting Falcons. They flew with amazing precision, thrilling the crowds, earning their name Thunderbirds by the noise. <coughs> as you write, as my old service, the Air Force clamors for new nuclear missiles and bombers. There's also the persistent quest for yet more fighter jets, including overpriced, distinctly underperforming ones like the F-35, the Ferrari of fighter planes. Hey, I like Ferraris. What can I say? As with any supercar, they are terrific boy toys. Though, of course, women are now part of the fun. The military wants more F-35s and even newer ones called the F-22. What are these hot rods all about? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the F, what's, what's ironic about the F-35 is, um, you know, the F-35 was, was supposed to be more like a Ford truck. Uh, it was not a Ferrari. <laughs> it was supposed to be a low-cost fighter jet, a uh, fighter attack jet. Uh, I remember, you know, the Air Force was working on the F-35 when, when I was still in, in the Air Force. Uh, it was it was. Um, uh, and, you know, this is what happens when it, with the Pentagon and the military industrial complex. You take something that's supposed to be a, a low cost kind of do it all uh, Ford truck uh, and you you turn. You turn the billions of dollars loose, and you turn a military contractor like Lockheed Martin loose, yeah. uh, and and all of a sudden, your Ford truck morphs into a Ferrari. <laughs> uh, it, it instead of you know costing thirty thousand dollars and being able to to do just about everything, right. it costs more like three hundred thousand uh, dollars, and you drive it you know once a week. Uh, it's good on the racetrack, but that's about it, <laughs> um, and. And that's what's happened with the F-35. It, it, it's, and I'm not the one who, who's calling the F-35 a, a Ferrari. It's actually the Air Force chief of staff oh my. Who, who, who called it, who compared it to a Ferrari. So this is, again, this is the, this is the military industrial complex out of control. Uh, what starts off as what, what's supposed to be a, you know, a low-cost uh, Swiss Army knife kind of a jet that can do it all, you know, ends up being this this kludge, this this disappointing weapon system that costs a lot of money. Uh, that's supposed to be a jack of all trades, but is really a master of none <laughs> at a very high price. Oh my goodness! That you know, it, as you talk about this stuff, I think about the politicians who insist they're conservative. Doesn't conservatism kind of? necessitate fiscal discipline i mean what what kind of conservatism is it if there's no fiscal discipline it just, yeah go ahead that yeah that old that old breed of of conservatism is is almost gone right. you know I, I think back to i know i'm old enough to remember william proxmire oh yes uh in his in his golden fleece awards uh, you know, I, if, if I'm right, I, if I, if my memory is right, he was a Republican. I believe so. Uh, and, uh, and he would, you know, he would highlight wasteful spending uh, by the government. 
and typically often often enough it was a pentagon example <laughs> so so he would he would take a look at something like the c5 airplane or or some other incredibly expensive weapon system and he would say um, he would tell the american people that you're being fleeced this is this is far too expensive uh we need to we need to stop building this and I would say he was that old-fashioned conservative. Yes. Who, who, you know, that's that's that old that old idea of of we we should we should be getting value for our money. After all, it is our money. We are the taxpayers who fund the the Pentagon, who provide the you know roughly you know seven hundred and fifty billion dollars a year a yes. year to the Pentagon to buy its weapons, to fight its wars. Uh, we should be, if we're spending that much money, at the very least, we should be getting value for the, for the money. But, you know, the Pentagon can't even pass an audit. Uh, so, so we know right away that we're not getting value for the money. The only way fiscally to discipline the Pentagon is to cut its budget. Uh, but, even even a modest effort, you know, the Congress, there was a bill before the Congress to cut the Pentagon budget by 10 percent. Right. And of course, that that bill failed. I think there was another bill to cut the Pentagon budget by only three percent. And that bill failed. So we can't even cut the, the Pentagon budget by by a small amount. Uh, and this always makes me think of a little anecdote that. Uh, 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 Major General shared with me uh, where he was talking about, you know, he's talking to his first sergeant and he was complaining to his first sergeant that, oh, geez, our, our, our budget is down for this year. And the first sergeant looked at him. He said, sir, that's not so bad. It'll force us to think, <laughs> you know, having your budget cut forces you to think like, hey, wait a minute. Now that our budget's cut, now we need to prioritize. See, we're not even forcing the Pentagon to prioritize. We're throwing money at them, and they're just spending it willy-nilly on whatever they want. Uh, and so as a result, there's an enormous amount of waste. Absolutely amazing that, I mean, what does it say that they don't even want an audit? What has ever happened to the idea of, of having it? I mean, how can you? How can you call yourself a conservative and not be for auditing areas? I guess it's some kind of, uh, you know, golden lamb, you know, that uh, you just cannot, you can't even question it. It's it's an idol that people have to believe in. I actually read uh, somebody saying, uh, uh, I don't want my kids to, to learn about uh, actual American history because it gets in the way of their beliefs. And there's so much of that. It's it's amazing uh, to me. And, you know, in America, for the last hundred years or so, we've been treated as relatively passive consumers, people who just, you know, we sit there and, and buy whatever, you know, we just do our, our automatons. We're not the active citizens our founders intended. Democracy can only work if we are actually citizens and not just consumers. Certainly... In my lifetime, we've seen example after example that we are suckers for clever advertising. In this vein, you write that you, you asked a friend who's still intimate with the military-industrial complex, what's up with its dreams and schemes? 
what did your friend say? What did you learn about the language that's being used to justify super expensive budgetary requests by the Pentagon? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, my, my friend was like, <laughs> you know, he's like, hey, guess what? Guess what the new thing is? You know, it's all about artificial intelligence and uh, quantum computing and, and all these other buzzwords. Uh, and so, you know, this is something that that isn't really new. I remember when, uh, you know, when I was in the service in the Air Force and we were talking about total total situational awareness. You know, this is the idea that, you know, we can we can have uh, or the other the other concept was full spectrum dominance, meaning basically that the United States has to be dominant everywhere. You know, that that's the only way we can be safe. And by everywhere, I mean, you know, we need to be dominant on land, on the sea, uh, you know, uh, in the air, even in space, you know, the cyber world, right. you know, you, you you name it. We have to be number one. Mm. Uh, and. Of course, that comes at enormous expense, number one. But number two, you know, if, if that's your concept of, you know, safety and security, yeah. what, what, that, what that means is, is that uh, you'll, you'll, you'll basically bankrupt your country, right. uh, you know, just, just in the name of safety. You know, I, I guess it's, it's, like imagining, it's like imagining your home, Bert, you know, your home as a castle or maybe better as a fortress, right? And somebody's like, well, I have to be safe, Right. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to fill my gun safe with guns. You know, I'm going to put cameras everywhere. I'm going to put up an electric fence. I'm going to hire security guards and so on and so forth. Um, and it's like, well, you know, do you really, number one, do you really need all that to be safe in, in your home? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, aren't you being just paranoid? Uh <laughs> And, and number two, if you keep spending all this money on guns and security guards and surveillance cameras, eventually you're going to run out of money. <laughs> you know, you're going to you're going to bankrupt yourself in, in the name of safety. Uh, and, and I think in a way that that's the kind of of rationale uh, or that that, you know, people use uh, people in power use to try to sell this to us. Right. That it's about safety, it's about security, uh, and yet we're being fleeced in in the in the name of those you know those those marketing words. Those marketing words are powerful and effective. I mean, doesn't that sound cool? Full spectrum dominance. As a previous guest on this show said, you know, it's not uh, uh, China or Russia or anybody else that really threatens America. It's our spending on the military that is doing that. It's undercutting our actual security. And I hate to be uh, pick on the Navy, but it's like we're spending like a, a drunken sailor. <clears throat> Sorry about that, Navy people. Uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is William Astori, whose article on Tom Dispatch asks about the U.S. military post-Afghanistan. Can we finally give peace a chance? And... The fact that despite our tremendously expensive and sophisticated weapon systems, we keep losing wars. In Vietnam and Afghanistan, our big bucks, super sophisticated military lost to what you call small, underarmed units of the Taliban, unquote. Same as it was in our prior longest war, Vietnam. In just Afghanistan, as you know, we spent 
Two trillion plus dollars. And I who can imagine what a trillion dollars? It's just beyond my ability to comprehend. We spent two trillion plus dollars to wage a counterinsurgency campaign that failed dismally. Now, since the group XTC sang, generals and majors always seem so unhappy unless they got a war. The focus turns to China. And given that we spend an estimated we spent an estimated eight trillion dollars on the Afghan and Iraq wars, casting aside for the moment the question of why our competition with China has to be framed as a military threat, what if, as you ask, the U.S. truly had to fight a near peer like China? It would be a disaster. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the war that the Pentagon says it's, 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 it's constantly uh, training for and equipping for. But when you stop to think, that, that if we ever had a war with China or, or any other any other nation, uh, any other people with nuclear weapons, uh, it, it's potentially you know not just incredibly expensive, but but uh, the beginning of of, of uh, Armageddon. Yeah. So <laughs> so yeah, the, the rhetoric the rhetoric of the new Cold War is is something that that we you know we must. We must reverse that 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 rhetoric, uh, and and uh, you know as the song goes, as I said, give peace a chance. Right. Uh, you made a great you made a great point, Bert. I wanted to touch on something that you said um, about the inconceivable sums that we spend on defense. Right. Sure. Uh, I think I think what gets people is is exactly that. Uh, it's uh-huh. it's it's difficult. It's a diff- difficult enough to imagine you know, $750 billion a year being spent uh, on national defense, you know, $2 trillion spent on, on the Afghan war. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, again, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, one of the ways that, 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 that people, uh, you know, we, we have a much better understanding when somebody tells us, hey, did you know the Pentagon just spent $650 for a toilet seat? Right. Do you know? Do you know the Pentagon just spent two thousand dollars for a hammer, right? You know that that strikes people right away. We understand that. We know we can go down to the hardware store, get a decent hammer for twenty or thirty dollars, and we start answering questions. We 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 ask questions like, why is the Pentagon spending two thousand dollars for this special hammer? And we're like, aha, something is wrong there. Right. right. Uh, and we used we used to hear these stories. You know, I used to read about it. Uh, you don't hear about this anymore. Very rarely. Yes. Do you do you see in the mainstream media or or in the local newspaper, you know, the Pentagon spent, you know, five thousand dollars for a drink cup holder, and, you know, for for its uh, for its, um, you know, C, C, C-17 cargo plane or whatever. Uh, it, it's the the amount of uh, the 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 number of reporters who actually specialize in defense matters and in, in military matters mm-hmm. and and who actually are able to report about it uh, in a critical way the number of reporters have greatly decreased uh, you know the mainstream you know as you know uh, the mainstream media uh, say you know 40 50 years ago it was more independent there were more reporters uh, there were more Reporters who who had military experience, you know, maybe coming out of World War II, uh, they had they they weren't 
restricted. They weren't embedded like reporters are today oh in God. the military. Really? You know, like reporters like uh, David Halberstam were able to go anywhere, see anything. Uh, and so we're not getting the kind of insight into all of the you know blunders and crimes the military is is committing. In fact, most of the commentators that you see on your television screen are are you know retired colonels and generals with a conflict of interest. And by that I mean oh, wow. there are they often work for defense contractors like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and so forth. Uh, this is true of even people like, you know, General Mattis. Uh, it's true of um, the, the current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who, you know, be- before he became Secretary of Defense was on, I think he was on the board of Raytheon. So, mm. so, so our reporters, our, our, our commentators, uh, even our so-called civilian defense officials are all compromised. That they all have a conflict of interest. They all profit from the system, and so nothing changes. And I noticed that, uh, frankly, even Nora O'Donnell on CBS, uh, she's got very, very, very often some militaristic, you know, aren't the military great kicker to the end of the half-hour show, and it's like you know, people say that there's a conspiracy in the media. No, they go after their advertisers. They want to make their advertisers happy. They're playing to the market. The market wants, they like things military. And obviously, they, you know, here we are talking about $8 trillion for what? And the idea of spending $3.5 trillion to build up what I consider to be real national security, create a lot of jobs, you know, create new energy grid, electricity, lots of things like that. Oh, no, we can't do that. But how dare you question, you know, another trillion here or there for the military? It's that mindset is really interesting. And it's it's surprising to me, really, that, you know, you and I remember after Vietnam, we thought there might be, well, since we're not at war, let's invest in ourselves. But that is not happening. And it, uh, how we change that? I mean, you know, the power of advertising, the power of wording is just, it's hard to fight against that and to come up with something new, some new narrative. We, you know, certainly, uh, uh, you know, the, the peace people from the, the late 1960s, that... That's not where people are these days, uh, but it, somehow, it, at least I think there's some degree of hope that we're talking about climate change. I think people are starting to get that and the opportunities that are there for new jobs and a new redirection of our dollars to have real national security. I like to have some degree of hope. And, and one thing for sure in the military, we're overprepared to fight wars with China and others. That it sounds very good. Wow, we're overprepared. Isn't that a good thing? Well, uh, no. <laughs> you know, I knew you'd it, say that. <laughs> no, uh, it isn't because you should only spend as as much on defense as as you have to, right? As as is necessary, uh, and you know, not. I I don't uh, to go back to my my house analogy. Right. Uh, sure. I mean, let's go back to that. You're keeping your house safe. Right. I mean, most of us are like, hey, if I want to keep my house safe, um, 
and I'm worried, you know, maybe, maybe I install deadbolts. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe I keep the lights on at night. Maybe, maybe I might hire a, a private security company or have a security alarm installed, but, but, but then I stop, right? I, I stop there because, because you don't want to spend more than is necessary on keeping your home safe because then you lose the opportunity to maybe take a vacation with your kids and enjoy life, or you don't have enough money to send your, your kids to college, for example, right? Uh, or to fix up your house, to, to install solar panels so that your heating bill goes down. Um, so we're doing that to our country by overspending on, on you know, national security, as I say. It's really all about fighting wars, not so much. It's national insecurity is what it is, right? Yes. Uh, and, and there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity cost as a result. Uh, our country is not prepared for climate change. People are dying. People are, are in the streets, uh, living in the streets, because allegedly we don't have enough money right. to, to house them. That's ridiculous. We're the richest country in the world. We have plenty of money to house uh, people in, in the United States. We choose not to. We choose to, or not we, the Congress chooses not to. The president chooses not to. Uh, and that's because these entities are controlled. I say, I like to say the owners and the donors, right? The, you know, the 1%. And the, you know, when the Supreme Court passed the Citizens United decision uh, and basically sold our government to the highest bidder. Uh, and, and that's what's, that's what's happening. Our, our Congress is, is, not our, is not responding to what we, the American people, want the Congress is res responding to the owners and donors, and so many of the owners and donors come from companies like, you know, the the, the Raytheon and, sure. and Northrop and and all the rest. Indeed, and you know, I think about so many people really don't like their jobs that much. They they sit in traffic all day long, back and forth, and they're working hard, and the idea of questioning. Where their money is going, you know, to the to the you know, unimaginable military expenditures, the idea of of building roads and hospitals and helping housing, you know, for example, as you mentioned, housing of people, it would be so much less expensive to to actually build houses than so many other uh, ways we're avoiding it. But people, it's like. You can't touch defense budget. It's like sacrilegious to do that. And changing the language of how he got there. And as you say, some of the, the donors and owners, it's like they own the language. They own the narrative. And, and getting around that, it's, it's hard to do. But, you know, we did just end a war. There is an end to the war. And you would think maybe now is the time to consider that. But it's, it's just not happening. And... Let me ask you a question that you ask in your essay. I wish I knew the answer to this. Your question is, why are so many otherwise sane people, including Joe Biden's foreign policy team, already rattling sabers in preparation for a new face-off with China, one that would be eminently avoidable with judicious diplomacy and an urge to cooperate on this embattled planet of ours? You ask that question, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think... 
you know, what, what you were saying just reminded me, this flashed into my mind, and, and let me just say it. When I used to see the whole notion, question authority, question authority, that those two words, I used to see that being put out there, asking the American people to question authority, question this whole idea of, of a new Cold War, that there's some kind of inevitable, inevitable conflict that we, we have to face with China. Question the authority that says we need to spend more than half of our discretionary federal funds on the military and constant warfare. Uh, and yet, I don't see that message being put out there. We need a new narrative. Yes. We need to remind our fellow citizens that it is, it is patriotic to question authority, that it is patriotic to dissent from the master narrative. Uh, you know, I would, I would urge everyone listening mm -hmm. to go back and, and read uh, President Eisenhower's famous Cross of Iron address, where he talks about uh, that we're, we're, we're sacrificing ourselves on a cross of iron with all of this military spending. That was 1953. Then in 1961, he gave his military industrial complex address. And, and what I want to touch on there is Ike talked about the spiritual dimensions of, of, this, of this constantly spending uh, money on, on violence and weaponry and warfare. Mm. Uh, he, he nailed it uh, when he talked about our spiritual impoverishment that we're being corrupted spiritually by all of this spending on violence and war and weaponry. And of course, Martin Luther King yes. famously gave his speech where he talked about that, that America was suffering a spiritual death, that we were becoming the greatest purveyors of violence in the world yes. during the Vietnam War. This is the message that needs to get out of there to the American people. It's not a new message. It's an old message. It's a message supported by conservatives like, like President Eisenhower, yes. who was a five-star general. It's a, it's a message supported by visionary civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King. This is what we need to return to. Uh, and, yet, and yet that old message is being drowned out by by this new Cold War rhetoric that somehow, you know, I, I know the new Dune movie is coming out. You know, Frank Herbert wrote Dune and Children of Dune, Dune Messiah. I, I read the Dune books. I was a great sci-fi fan. Uh, you know, Frank Herbert wrote, fear is the mind killer. Fear is mm. the mind killer. We need to, we, we, the American, we in the United States, we should be the least fearful people in the world uh, in the sense that we have this overwhelmingly strong uh, military. Uh, and, and yet we seem to be the most fearful people. Mm. Uh, we need to put fear behind us and we need to embrace the kind of message being put out there by people like, like, uh, like Ike and like Martin Luther King and, uh, yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, you know, looking back over the many years of my lifetime, Eisenhower was pretty darn good. I mean, in terms of uh, foreign policy, you know, in Central American stuff, eh, the Dulles 
boys kind of made a mess there. But domestically, he was pretty terrific. And it's no accident that uh, you are indeed a senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network, which is uh, something that knew this just happening. For those who may have just tuned in, we're talking with uh, William Astori, uh, who asks about the U.S. military post-Afghanistan. Can we finally give peace a chance? And he's a uh, retired lieutenant colonel in uh, the U.S. Air Force. And and you talk about that. I mean, it's good to put that in there. It gives you some, uh, some gravitas being in the Air Force. And here we are, you know, the military universe is way too big for, for virtually anybody to conceptualize. Uh, and most of us have no way to understand what it does, or measure its effectiveness, as you say. Uh, and why do you say that the leaders, the, those military guys that we see on TV with chests weighted down by stars and ribbons, and it's not just America that does that, you know, the, by standards of the business world, they would be seen as failures, these guys with uh, stars and ribbons just all over their chest. How is it that they are not judged by those ordinary standards? Yeah, yeah, they, they, they sure should be. Uh, we, we, need, we need much more uh, accountability. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's actually surprising when you, when you stop and think about it uh, that, that no general has been fired for, for cause, for, for losing these wars. You know, we, we think of uh, General McChrystal, you know, General Stanley McChrystal, you know, he, wa- he wasn't fired for a surge that failed uh, in, in Afghanistan. You know, he was, he was fired for, for saying, you know, imprudent and, and insubordinate things. You know, General, General Petraeus, you know, David Petraeus, well, you know, he got into trouble you know, not because he, he lied to us basically about the success of the surge in, in Iraq. Uh, you know, he, um, he got into trouble for, <laughs> for uh, getting involved with the a mistress who also wrote his uh, biography. So, you know, not only do our, our, not only are generals not held to account, uh, but they go before Congress wearing all those, you know, chest full of ribbons and badges, as you said, uh, and they're most often uh, celebrated and not not asked uh, tough questions. Right. So we we had the latest hearings about Afghanistan, and basically, you know, generals go before Congress and say, you know, oh well, we we told President Biden not to pull those troops out because right. you know Af- you know Afghanistan was going to fall. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's that that's just total BS. Yes, because because the generals had been spinning all along for the last 20 years or so, that we were winning, that, that the United States was basically winning in Afghanistan, that we were creating stable forces, the, the Afghan National Army was going to be a strong force, mm. the security forces were ready to take over for us. That This was a narrative the military was pushing out there. And as soon as we pull out the troops, that strong, stable Afghan army evaporated in a matter of days. And, and, and that was something that we knew was going to happen. Yes, we, didn't, we didn't know it was going to happen in a matter of days. But just about everyone in the know, you know knew that it was going to happen. Uh, and it was kept from the American people. So you know, the generals, what we need to do, we need to remember that the generals work for us. They are public servants. Uh, and when they fail, they should be fired. 
And we forget that, you know, part of democracy is that the government works for us. We do not work for them. And that's, it's, it's not where we are these days. Uh, the 20th anniversary just happened, you know, of the so-called War on Terror, which was very profitable. And, of course, these military guys saying, oh, we shouldn't have pulled out. You know, what the heck? It doesn't matter win, lose, whatever. We're spending money. And that, that's in their interest. Of course, there was, there was no there there in Afghanistan. It was never, ever possible. I mean, you know, an occupied country, they want to govern themselves. Anyway, so George W. Bush 20 years ago said the U.S. was fighting an axis of evil. Well, after all this spending and bombing and killing and destroying, what is the status of those countries in that axis of evil now? Well, we've done a pretty good job of, of spreading more evil, right? Um, you can't, I mean, you can't, you can't wage a war on terror because war is terror. Uh, and, and when you wage a war on terror, all you do is amplify it. Uh, you know, what, what we've seen in, in Afghanistan uh, is, you know, after 20 years of, of war there, the Taliban emerged stronger. Yes. Uh, and after 20 years of, 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 of war on so-called radical Islamic extremism, right. uh, we have more radical Islamic extremism than we did in 9-11-2001. So that war has failed, uh, and we need to declare that that war is over. You would think, but that makes too much good sense. And if actual enhanced national security is what we really want, and I think we do, what is the effect on, on those you recognize as, quote, mostly brown and black people across the globe who posed, who posed no th little threat and few of whom ever meant you any harm at all? End of your quote. Yeah, you know, you know Bert, I, I think to myself that, that the, the, the image of the United States, right. uh, and, and I think in, in people's mind around the world, I think it used to be probably the Statue of Liberty. Yes, Lady Liberty. Oh, um, no. You know, I think I think of the beginning of the Godfather movies. Uh, you know, you see you see young Vito Corleone. <laughs> you know, you see him come to to New York City, and he looks up at the Statue of Liberty, and you're like, "This is America, the land of opportunity." Right? Of course, it's a movie about the mafia, but let's not yeah, go well, there. Right. Um, but I now I think the image of the United States is is a is a predator or a reaper drone dropping hellfire missiles on people mm. i think that's the new image of america mm. uh and it, and it speaks it speaks to the the failure of the war on terror and and just the way that 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 we in the united states have become much weaker uh i would say spiritually and morally and democratically as a result of this disastrous war Unbelievable. Spend all this money, and yet we're actually, in fact, weaker. So right now, we're not at war with so much power and wealth concentrated in so few hands and having so much power over public opinion, a large portion of that being military, you know, the money and power. Can we keep democracy alive? How real a threat to our democracy are we facing? I mean, this is what made America, you know, we wanted to separate and govern ourselves and not be governed by a few super wealthy people as it was before our war against uh, Britain for independence. Can we keep democracy alive? No, we can't. We can't if 
if we continue down the road of constant warfare and constant preparation for war, we, we cannot keep democracy alive. And it's not me saying that. James Madison said it you know, more than 200 years ago. Uh, constant warfare and preparations for war is the death of democracy. Uh, and that's why we need to give peace a chance. You know, not because, you know, it, not because it's the right thing to do. Uh, and I think it is the right thing yes. to do. Uh, but, but also because it's, it's, it's the healthy thing to do for our democracy and, and for our country. And I would say it's the patriotic thing to do. Yeah, it really is patriotic, and uh, I'm not sure everybody uh, thinks about that uh, these days, but uh, uh, as has been said, dissent is the highest form of patriotism, and, uh, you know, just worshiping authoritarian leaders and not questioning what the government is doing with our money, gosh, that's not patriotic. Our, our adversaries love that kind of thing. Well, tell us a little bit about the Eisenhower Media Network. It sounds fascinating. How can people uh, get in touch with that? Oh, yeah. Danny Shurson, uh, he's a oh, yeah. retired major. He runs it. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a diverse uh, group of, uh, of uh, uh, retired military, uh, FBI agents, you know, just trying to, to speak out uh, and to encourage uh, more Americans to, to, be, to be critical of our government. And the Eisenhower uh, Media Network, you, you can, you know, we have a we have a website uh, online, and we have a Twitter feed. Uh, we're trying to get the message out there that questioning authority is is really what it's all about. But if you just put in Eisenhower Media Network, it'll ah, come right up. Amen. Yeah, that will work. Hey, thank you so much. Very very uh, educational. We got to shake things up a little bit. Thanks so much for being with us, Bill. A story on keeping democracy alive. We're not giving up. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. Thanks for having me again. Away from me